We'll go after all of them. Together. You wouldn't know how. You're gonna teach me how. You don't have the guts. Not only do I have the guts, I have the authority. And welcome to episode 7 of Getting the Foe You Season 2. Where from Heaven's Gate to the present day. Join us as we get to know Willem Dafoe in this dedicated Dafoe podcast. So, Petros, we're Ooh. moving from the holiness of last week. I'm still feeling elevated. I've given a sermon on the mount. <laughs> <laughs> Turning that water to wine. Oh, well, yeah, I'm having, a, I'm having an absolute hoot. I've, do you know what, Daryl? For the last week, I've just been speaking to nothing but uh, burning like flames. Like, that's it. Uh, uh, my nights have been broken with waking up and a burning flame being at the end of my bed telling me to do stuff. And it's never good. <laughs> yeah, I've been visited by a snake, but I do think I need to see the landlord about that, to be honest. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is there, why is there a lion in, in Crawley? It's nowhere near London Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> Leeds is not the place that you typically see a talking snake, but I could just be high on mould. Um, <laughs> so, you know, here we are. We are in episode seven. And um, we are sticking with the theme. I, I say the theme. Um, you know, we're sticking with the similar area of Defoe being a good guy, a good person, um, <laughs> fighting that good fight with Mississippi burning. So also a nineteen eighty eight film as well. So this is a, this is a a rarity on this podcast that we do two films in the same year let alone two films that came out literally back to back so this is this is Defoe in full kind of yeah like oh, maybe I need to do something better with my life like I've been <laughs> playing these assholes I gotta play a good guy <laughs> yeah this is a, a big big do good a month for uh, Defoe from uh, Jesus to the FBI um, so different saviors in different respects, uh, depending on your perspective and if you love yourself some of that there Bible. So this is a yeah an interesting one with lots of topics of discussion. So we're talking about you know not just the foe but the acting tour de force that is Gene Hackman and the stacked rogues gallery of supporting actors. Uh, the artistic license taken with the very difficult subject matter of the movie, the subsequent backlash that it received as well. And we're also talking about how this film could be a backdoor pilot to the Saw movie franchise as well. Um, I'm in for it. I'm in for it. Tobin Bell. He's, 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 had, a, he's had a grand plan from the beginning. <laughs> Don't worry, because if it doesn't make sense now, if you don't trust us by now, come on in. Let us take you by the hand. It's going to be all right. Oh. Don't you worry about it. But this was a lot of fun to record. Uh, who did we have joining us this week, Petros? Oh, we had comedian and podcaster Jamie Allerton, uh, who was an absolute hoot, who I think said to us, and I can say this up front, I feel say got to the end of the conversation and said i don't think we were offensive guys so that's good to know uh going into this uh 
conversation guys that yeah we don't we we we, we tried our hardest not to not not to, not to tread on any toes not that we wanted to it's just this film is a tackles a difficult subject matter okay and i will not be answering any further questions not without a lawyer present <laughs> um yeah we, we do mention it in the episode as well but we'll say it again up front obviously we're a willem defoe podcast we're not a, a true crime podcast a political podcast you know we're not trying to put the world to rights or anything like that so you know just keep that in mind with that lens on as we go into the episode and it'll be you know a right old good time as well and if you are having a good time with the episode you're enjoying the podcast overall uh reach out get in touch with us we've got a lot of ways which you can do such a thing uh petros where can they find us so you can find us on twitter instagram and tiktok all at the you pod or if you'd like to send us a little email, do you know what I mean? You wanna, you wanna, you wanna get another hundred guys to the scene immediately. That will make sense soon enough. Uh, send us an email at defoeupod at gmail Wonderful stuff. So with that all said, let's jump into this one. It's episode seven, Mississippi Burning, joined by Jamie Allerton. Enjoy, and we will see you on the other side. So. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. This week, we take our second visit of the season to 1988 to discuss the crime thriller Mississippi Burning. Defoe plays FBI agent Alan Ward, a by-the-book agent looking into the disappearance of civil rights workers. Now, helping us get to know Defoe a little better this week and see if you should give this movie a Mississippi, or if it should be found Mississippi by everyone, is comedian and host of the Best Movies 2 podcast, Jamie Allerton. Jamie, thank you very much for joining. How the devil are you doing today? I'm great. I'm feeling pumped up for some justice after <laughs> watching Mississippi Burning again. I'm just I'm ready to fight anyone. Maybe another white guy, I don't know. <laughs> we, we we were toying with the idea of like halfway through the pod being like, We need a hundred more guys here. <laughs> just, the, the pod is just just us and a hundred yeah, just a, a load of a load of navy guys just off duty, just coming coming to help out. What the podcast can't support us? Buy the podcast. <laughs> yeah we're exclusively advertising ourselves to the navy reserve this episode when the eventual because we are billing this as the sexy season so when the inevitable cancellation comes if it hasn't by the time this episode comes out we're going to call in the reserves uh we're going to go through the swamps to look for some kind of shred of credibility left <laughs> not complete arse wipes ah well if this is the sexy season we picked the right actor in this film as in brad Jurif. oh hello <laughs> the voice of chucky in this yes yes please a guy who's like face i just never recognize because i just know him as a murderous doll and a terrible representation for the ginger community Cheers, <laughs> set us back but, yes. uh, but, but an evergreen halloween costume gets recommended to me it's a couple's costume <laughs> yeah <laughs> um <laughs> Movie. I just realised you were still talking about Chucky. I thought you meant Brad Dourif. I was like, I don't know if I'd dress up as him for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Wormtongue, but... 
No, I meant I meant Daryl being 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 a redhead man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 See, as a couple's one that that favors the woman because they get to wear like a nice dress and like a leather jacket to be Tiffany, whereas like <laughs> any guy has to dress like a toddler. Do you know what I mean? In dungarees and like a kind of brightly coloured striped top. <laughs> Honestly, the the line between Chucky from Child's Play and Chucky from Rugrats is so fucking thin. <laughs> I'm going to tell you from personal experience. Where do you think um, Chucky's mum is? I don't, same place my dad is gone um, <laughs> yeah difficult end of 2022 for me it was either Chucky or Dharma so difficult lost, <laughs> lost a lot of work lost a lot of work <laughs> yeah, very difficult for your boy moving moving swiftly on I see uh, Jamie more directly anytime we have a new guest on the podcast what we're always keen to know to kick things off is a bit about your Defoe history. How well do you know Defoe? So we would ask, uh, do you recall your first Willem Defoe film? Do you know how many you've seen? Uh, what are your general views on the man we call Willem Defoe? I thought I'd seen most of his stuff until I checked IMDb and realised he never stops. He's running from something or he hates his family. <laughs> he, he doesn't like his wife. Is he married? Do we know? Yeah. Married. Yep. Does he hate his wife? No, I think they own an alpaca farm on the outskirts of Rome. Well, he yeah. does never see the same alpacas because this man <laughs> never stops. <laughs> does he hate the alpacas? <laughs> How is he doing like Shadow of the Vampire and any other film in the same year when he must have been like on a remote island for six months to do Shadow of the Vampire? My emotions towards the throat, sorry, uh, are like bemusement. Uh, how he's just managed to do all this yeah it's he's a busy man he's a busy man like we say this season in 88 we will have covered you know by the time the episode goes out the last temptation of christ and mississippi burning by all means pretty busy 88 pretty disparate um, films right do you know what I mean like it's like kind of <laughs> the savior of man and also Jesus. the savior of man do you know what I mean? <laughs> The saviour of man and the white saviour of man. Hey, that's, um, that's the joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. Yes, that's Yeah, end the podcast here. We've done it. <laughs> yeah, shortest episode ever. Support us on Patreon. Only fans coming soon. I hope you like feet. Uh, <laughs> I hope he has the same glasses in uh, Last Temptation of Christ, though. He does. He looks good in them glasses, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He does. He does. This is one of these things with like movies like this. It's. You forget how how long a guy like Defoe has been going, and then when you see him like young, you're kind of like, eh. I mean, a lot of the letterbox reviews I saw for this were like, I know this isn't the movie to really say this, but Defoe is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon there's a certain scene as well where people are like, oh yeah, I would have him throw me on the bonnet of a car and put a gun in my face. <laughs> is it when Gene Hackman's singing at him in the car at the start? <laughs> oh he's being such a daddy in the car like you just wait for him to be like would you stop singing i'll turn this car around we won't investigate these murders i'll turn it around <laughs> i know we live we live in thirsty times it's the sexy season <laughs> um, first, first to foe for me i think it's either this film that i watched when i was too young or speed to cruise control lovely um, stuff oh interesting the only reason I sort of interject there is because at this point in the podcast, everyone either says it was Spider-Man or Platoon. So the fact that you've said Mississippi Burning or Speed 2, hot damn. Uh, <laughs> what 
What is what 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 a two what a two combo for you, Jamie Allison. And I remember being so like it's weird because I was really disappointed by Jason Patrick, but Willem Dafoe doesn't let you down in that film. He doesn't, and that's I, I like if you could cross the two. I love Dennis Hopper, but if you could switch the two and put Willem Dafoe in Speed One and Dennis Hopper in Speed Two, I think the whole franchise works better. Oh yeah, spicy. Still got the still got the leeches <laughs> <laughs> for no reason. He's got leeches. He's got leeches in one. Yeah, and uh, just like the mangled hand in both. Yeah, gotta have a man- mangled hand sort of crossover. We need a we need some narrative threads. Which is what we're all about here. Oh, I'm glad I beat the rest of the rubes with the the Spider Mans. <laughs> to be fair, we we have said as a running joke, almost serious at this point, that if anyone says that Spider Man wasn't their first film, we'd just end the episode. And now, <laughs> and now, unlike, unlike, unlike off menu, we haven't got the we haven't got the stones or the uh, <laughs> or, or, or the listenership to really just have like a troll episode. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, hey. It's only, it's only a short. Hey, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, Papa Defoe's all bread. Papa Defoe's all bread. We're not selling out the Royal Albert Hall anytime soon. This would have been fun. a really short episode for me to play in front of my mum so that she realises it's not live. So I can stand there and be like, that's why you can hear my voice in there. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm stood here. <laughs> the light She's fading. Like- Jamie's amazing at throwing his voice. <laughs> I keep telling you, I'm not a wizard mother. I'm a human boy. I'm your boy. Now let me have a bed. <laughs> Stop putting me under the stairs. <laughs> I'm sick of the straw. Does he have sex in all these films? He does, doesn't he? Even if they, it's not in the final film, I can't imagine a Willem Dafoe film where he doesn't have sex. <laughs> there's, always, oh, there's always a strip of film on a cutting room floor somewhere. I'm just thinking of what would have connected all these films, and I think it's that he has sex. Like, the way he looks at Aunt May and Spider-Man at that Thanksgiving meal, I think... Sucking those fingers. Yeah. Finish it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's always room for some sexy Defoe interpretation, especially in the sexy season. He's just sucking away going, Aunt oh, May, yeah. you could be the real dessert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to envision when there would be a sex scene in this that wouldn't be like deeply problematic. I'll go with in the theatre. You know that guy who, who keeps saying like more men. There's that yeah, 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 yeah. Kevin Dunn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a bit. There's a bit where he says like we can't get a hundred FBI here in four minutes, and he's like, I'll show you how, and just rattles him. Absolutely rattles his body. <sighs> Coldplay starts playing, starts unbuttoning the shirt. All the problems of Jessup County, Mississippi are solved. That's why the kids got the box over his head in the car. There was stuff that they couldn't see. Unspeakable. Awful (laughs) evils that simply could not be witnessed. But I suppose his sexiness aside, I mean, what what were your general views on on the phobia as well? Uh, I love him. I genuinely love him. I feel like he, he takes the craft seriously, but he doesn't take himself seriously. Uh, you know he does silly movies. He's happy to come back for a Spider Man. You know even he, he was in. He, he took a punt on John Wick. That could have been just a terrible straight to DVD uh, movie. So I've I've always admired him. Like he and he he kind of because he never became a blockbuster star. He could never fall below that as well. Like mm-hmm. I don't think the masses are going to see a Willem Dafoe film, but like film lovers will always go, oh, yeah, he does interesting work. I say, I'd say I respect him, and I don't respect many. <laughs> he doesn't respect us. He told us before recording 
um, before he'd even said hello that he does not respect us. Yeah, I'm off in a minute. Uh... <laughs> that's, that's a really astute point, though, that like he's a great kind of like second guy in it, or like, do you know what I mean? Like, like in John Wick, yeah. he kind of, he's really great at being that like guy who's he's just there for the first film and like he, he gives some. I don't know gravitas to the character. I think he he's kind of like how good he is as an actor gives the film a bit more weight as well. Like not to not to diminish Keanu Reeves, but like you go, oh, it's a kind of Keanu Reeves actioner that could have gone. Yeah, you, way. There's, oh, Willem Dafoe's in it as well. Okay, okay, give it a bit he, more. He's the onions to what could be a very bare cheeseburger. Lovely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Willem Dafoe is the onion of acting. <laughs> he's got layers, baby. I mean, he really did make Triple X State of the Union, didn't he? He was great in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he he makes some more. I mean, we've we've covered a few films at this point, sort of season one, especially where um, maybe in the context of the film, anyone could have played the role. But you're always glad it's the foe. You're like, oh, I feel in a safe pair of hands uh, when the foe is around. There's some comfort yeah, there. I'm never upset with him taking a paycheck. I'd, like some some actors, you are like, oh, come on, mate. You know, but for some reason, I even if if he did something that was absolutely awful in one year, and then he got a theatrical release in the next year, I'd be like, yeah, let's let's go. I'm all in on Willem Dafoe. Yeah, I mean, at the point of recording, it's not poor things. He's not too far from like coming out. It's getting a lot of good reviews, and I'm all up for seeing like Dafoe with some just grotesque, just face prosthetics on. <laughs> Let me all up in on that. Well, yeah, he's going to be in Beetlejuice 2 as well. You know he's just going to like, they're going to be like, they've got the shrunken head people in the first one. They'll be like, just Willem Dafoe just looks normal. Just is Willem <laughs> Dafoe. And he's just like, yeah, he's a he grotesque uh, Tim Burton character, of course. Yeah, yeah. He didn't know they were filming. He's just there. <laughs> just there, hanging out, living his life. He's, yeah, Beetlejuice 2, uh, Nosferatu is in that as well. Like I say, it's, it's great for us as a Dafoe podcast because like this man keeps working and we're going to be doing this for 20 years <laughs> um, it's depressing to think that one of his highest rated movies is Zack snyder's justice league though he's, he's gotta get to he's gotta pump some numbers oh uh, we'll get to that one in due course <laughs> oh yeah you're gonna ha- you're gonna have to do Zack snyder's justice league oh that's that, this is where my lack of respect for you turns up. That's actually made me happy. <laughs> I've seen that film and I know how little he's in it as well. <laughs> it's it's uh, not even that. It's Justice League. It's Zack Snyder's. Just it's the four hour. God, I've got so many better things to do. And it's not <laughs> even in the. It's not even in the right format to be screened. It's in squ- it's squared. <laughs> That's a future getting Defoe you problem. We're gonna put that on, put that off for so long. Can I put um, someone forward to be the guest? I'll just I'll pick someone who I hate down the line. <laughs> yeah, g- give us a list of like the top ten people you respect the least, um, but won't say it to their face, and then uh, we'll keep that as an industry secret. I think that's a Patreon tier right there. <laughs> give us your enemies <laughs> and we will we will slowly befriend them and make them feel like they'd be the be- best guest for it and then <laughs> Corden, we're coming for you <laughs> oh well you know before we incur the wrath of the ghost of james Corden, who is still alive <laughs> i guess um this seems like an appropriate time to now hand over to you petros for this week's the facts and the figures Oh, well, I got some defacts and defigures for you this week. Uh, 
Mississippi Burning is directed by Alan Parker and written by Chris Gelomo, based on the true life events of the deaths of James Charney, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schweiner on June 21st, 1964. The film stars Gene Hackman, Francis McDormand, Brad Dourif, Badger Dujala, Michael Rooker, Frankie Faison, Kevin Dunn, Arlie Ermey, and our very own by-the-book daddy, Willem Dafoe. The film was released on December 9th, 1988 in the US before getting a UK release on May 5th, 1989. The budget of this film is $15 million and took a box office return of $34,603,934, making it the 33rd highest grossing film of 1998 ahead of Child's Play with the aforementioned Brad Dourif and just behind Dangerous Liaisons. The film currently holds a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb, a Rotten Tomatoes score of 81% based on 27 critic reviews, and holds an audience score of 90% with over 25,000 ratings. The critic consensus reads, Mississippi Burning draws on real-life tragedy to impact a worthy message with a measured control of intelligent drama and a hard-biting impact of a thriller. Our first Defoe sighting is at 8 minutes and 26 seconds as him and Gene Hackman are driving in a car to Mississippi. And the first line we have from our boy Defoe is, Just read the file, Mr. Anderson. I can do without the cabaret. And that, ladies and gentlemen, are the defacts and the figures. Delightful stuff. So, Mississippi Burning, as touched on by Petros there, is uh, about a group of civil rights workers based on the real-life story of the civil rights workers who went missing in a small Mississippi town in 1964. Uh, it starts as a missing persons case and escalates into something much darker, much sinister, and our agents Alan Ward, played by Willem Dafoe, and Rupert Anderson, played by Gene Hackman, are sent to investigate. Now this Mississippi burning, um, a first time watch for me, and I think let's make no bones about it, sort of the top of the day. The discussion here, this is, it's a heavy film. It's a difficult film. It obviously touches on, you know, real life tragedy that led to uh, sort of the civil rights movement sort of being passed through uh, in the 60s as well. I thought it was a very, you know, obviously we'll break it down and get more into it. I thought it was a very good film with some great performances, but a difficult film. And obviously, you know, some episodes that we cover that are going to co- cover and touch upon harder subjects, you know, as a Defoe podcast, we'll do our best to be sort of sensitive around them as well, uh, whilst trying to take a viewpoint of looking primarily at Defoe. But yeah, sort of watching this at like, I didn't know too much of what to expect going into this, but then watching this at like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night, and I was like, oh, well, this I have to go to bed after this. Oh, this is this is a lot. But like for you, Jamie, you said you'd seen this one before, possibly a bit too young. Do you sort of recall your, I guess, like first impressions, first reactions to this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, I, we were kind of raised with no, there was no certificate in mind when we put on a film as kids. Our parents were always like, you know, you've you've grown up enough to, understand the word so you can watch the film which you know led to i definitely watched misery when i was too young <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's she doing oh god um so, so yeah I, I it's kind of um you know it was good because i was informed of kind of uh, american racism at a very young age and then 
you know the the themes of that is a bad thing that happened uh, you know because when you're a child you only understand kind of rudimentary themes mm-hmm. but at least it was it was kind of something that was instilled in me early on um and it's it's weird to you have like violence that parents deem acceptable when you're a kid like bond violence where you know there's a man who has no family or a name and bond is shooting him and that is fun and enjoyable versus kind of the violence in this which is <laughs> not only is it really graphic but you know that that genuinely has happened mm-hmm. to to people it's it's very real so I'd, I'd say it left it left a big mark on me but also I, I i do remember like the the gene hackman versus willem dafoe even as a kid because i was like yeah but gene hackman is doing stuff this is great like he's going out there and he's he's the cop that i've seen in all these other films where he's breaking the laws and he gets stuff done uh so that was weird to me because I was like, so surely the other guy must be wrong. But then he's he seems to be like in charge and doing it. He's not been placed as the baddie. So it's just two opposing views that also share the same view, which was like, it was kind of uh, my first introduction to nuance of character, I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah. Until I saw um, Speed 2 Cruise Control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a straight line from Mississippi Burning to Speed 2. <laughs> and, if, and if you tell me any different, listener, you're a liar. Yeah, I, I mean, this is... I think by this point, Defoe had done, I think, no more than 15 films by the point of 88. They, and it's weird to think that he comes sort of straight off The Last Temptation of Christ. I think really pushed to sort of get the role. I think he had a meeting with the director, Alan Parker, had a screen test, and the studio was a bit against him sort of taking the role, but he sort of got the backing of Parker, got the role. I think in some respects, Defoe was a little bit against type at this point in his career as well, because he, especially early career, you know, with stuff, say, like To Live and Die in LA in, in the, the rearview mirror of his career as well. He played a lot of villains, so to be so sort of like by the book and sort of straight laced, that very um I don't know, sort of FBI hairs, the only way I can sort of describe it. He's just, a G Man, yeah. He's an absolute G Man. Horn rim glasses. But I think that casting of him, like Jamie was saying, as that kind of opposing view and like you've got Gene Hackman almost playing very much two type of the kind of rogue cop, do you know what I mean? Almost in that Popeye Doyle mode. Having Willem Dafoe, it does give it, with that baggage of him playing, like, yeah, fresh off of, like, To Live and Die in L.A., like, for a lot of people in their kind of mind would have been the last film they probably would have seen him in, or Platoon, maybe. It would have been, it, it would have been good to kind of, because it, it would give you that push and pull of the, the kind of, oh, is this guy going to turn out to be sinister in some way? But then it, it comes in with that nuance. So I think I think it's, mm-hmm. it's great casting in that way, even if it is kind of uh, against type, but also using the type that he had as well. Yeah, it's kind of you need someone of his talent to be able to do so little, if that makes sense. Like because he's he's not given a lot, and it's like you can't both be showy. Gene Hackman is the showy one who's going to go into the barber shop, and you know he's going to flirt with women in the hairdressers. We need someone really, really good who can just do the the solid. He's the straight man in this, and I think people could confuse that for a nothing character. It's just that he's not big, and that's that's what I like mm-hmm. is. We're so used to Willem Dafoe coming on to a film and being like, well, I'm the biggest thing in this and I'm going to be the craziest thing. You know, I assume they just point like five different cameras at him and like, we think he's read the script. We'll see what happens. Whereas this is <laughs> this is like really, really muted. But that's why I think you could mistake that mutedness for a dull character. It's 
it's just that he finds like smaller nuance in it. Yeah, like watching this, I think there was just a number of times like when you watch a movie, especially for like, you know, sort of peek behind the curtain stuff, but when you watch a movie, especially for the purpose of discussing it on a podcast, you've got like, you know, a laptop like in hand or something, you kind of laptop screen, laptop screen type in. But there was a number of times in this where the big stretches had gone past and I just not typed anything because I was just sort of kind of really drawn in by like the sort of unfortunate world of this film and the performances, because like you say, uh, Defoe, I think, in any other sort of screenplay or handled differently, could have been lost as a bit of a too straight nothing character, but there's a lot of grounded nuance here to the performance, and there was a number of times like watching this, like watching Gene Hackman's performance, and it was just the, the, the amount he was just communicating in just like a facial expression, a little mm-hmm. smirk, a look, and I was kind of like, Fuck me, Gene Hackman's brilliant. <laughs> Holy shit, Gene <laughs> yeah. Hackman's good. It's like, don't get me wrong, I love my boy Defoe, uh, and he'll, he'll always be our, our baby boy on this podcast, but Gene fucking Hackman. Round of, appla- round of applause for Gene Hackman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you talk to any actor from like the 70s to the 90s, Hackman's probably going to be listed in at least their top five of best yeah. actors. Wouldn't surprise me, yeah. And it's weird that he's kind of he's. I'd say the next generation past ours is they probably don't reference him that much. You know, there's not really that those parts that he, I know we're sorry we're, we're going off on a tangent to Hackman, but no, I'm up for going for <laughs> Hackman means. Ridge, the, the, the side podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> but it's, there is not there's not an iconic Hackman like even Superman isn't watched that much anymore by you know young ones. Um, the, there's not that like huge like the you know you got the Godfather and you've got your you know your P- big Pacino performances, Hackman's big ones would probably be you know um the as Popeye Doyle in uh, yeah. the or French like Connection the po- or like the conversation do you know what I mean yeah. like that kind of like in between Coppola film and it's like Hackman just like is basically on screen for like hundred percent of that movie and just kind of like is enthralling and can play the saxophone like a motherfucker. <laughs> well, like, do you think any student unions right now are having a poster sale where there's the conversation? Of course. <laughs> so it's oh, weird God. that he never got. He, even though he did, I'd call them iconic performances. Then he like he never got that like big. Oh, this is the one that is going to stick around forever. And maybe that helped though, maybe because he never got typecast then, I don't think. Even though he does he does kind of play Gene Hackman in every film. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a lot of people like of, of a certain generation, like the 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 staple Gene Hackman will be the Royal Tenenbaums, right? As the kind of like oh, yeah. marginally pa- uh, yeah, patriarch of that family. And it's like really trying to think what has he really been in since for that younger do you know what I mean like even for something that would be nostalgic for maybe like, like i feel like enemy of the state uh yes that kind of cashed in on it was pretty much the character from the conversation yes and that that cashed in on, that's that felt like the first like we've got gene hackman you know the other films were it's Gene hackman's in this film but that felt like, felt like a it's will smith the new hot star and he's playing against Gene Hackman, who's, you know, from the 70s. Look at this. This is going to be amazing. Yeah, I miss him, I guess. He's retired and happy, though, isn't he? He's, yes, he, he is. Of... I think last year there was, like, a somebody had, like, reached out to him and it's like, he's, he's in he's in New Mexico living his best life. And it's like, yeah. oh, good, you... good Lord. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks for that update. I'm good. I'm glad that Gene's happy. 
You'll always get the newspapers or put a picture up of them now and be like, look how old this old fuck is who dared to age. <laughs> like, they tried it with Alicia Silverstone, didn't they? Where they're like, Alicia Silverstone, put on weight, a fucking bitch, how dare she? And you're like, people age, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently this is a thing that happens. I was just having like a quick gander through like Gene Hackman's uh, filmography. And this is like my idiot brain. Like I just saw 1998 Twilight and I was like, he wasn't in that vampire fuck film, was he? <laughs> no, no. He was Edward. Completely, <laughs> completely different to Twilight, followed by the animated movie Ants in 1998, an enemy of the state. So busy, busy year, vampire ant villain in 1998 big year for gene hackman but i think one of the first scenes we see them both in is that car ride when they're coming into like jessup county which i think kind of sets up their characters and like who they are and their sort of dynamic really well you know we get sort of the younger fbi agent wards uh played by defoe and he's like you know i've worked these kind of cases before that's why they brought me here uh hackman sort of singing from the that clan hymn sheet because <laughs> he's obviously he's not really taken it that seriously at the time because it's just been investigated as a it's just a missing persons case yeah. at the start just kind of like a sort of routine by the book thing i think the rumor is that maybe they've kind of coordinated this on purpose so that there would be the media storm so everyone's saying oh they're hiding in new york or they're hiding in canada yeah or it's uh as one of the locals of the town says um some conspiracy orchestrated by martin luther king they're all just like actors and they're just like hiding and stuff and i suppose to ask from a from a comedian perspective as well jamie as because uh, hackman's character makes that joke what's got four eyes and can't see mississippi so uh, so a smoke, a smoke from Jamie Allen. I'm there. basing my Edinburgh show around that joke. Uh, <laughs> next year. Uh, where just for the whole the whole hour, I'll do that or uh, Hackman's baseball joke, which I think will land fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think enough. It's a one man play by breaking down the humour of Mississippi burning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and, then, and then a hard pivot to the serious stuff at minute 40 and then and then round, round it up with some laughs for the last 20 do you know what we'll say that you never ever see in films that they do show in this is that hackman tells that joke to the sheriff and then he forgets that he said it and he tries to say it to brad Jurif, you know the baseball joke and mm. brad Jurif's like yeah i heard it i heard it before it's such a weird moment <laughs> what was it like um baseball it's the only sport where like a black man can wave a stick in a white man's face and he doesn't start a riot or yeah. something like that and like first time he said it was like yeah 1964 gene hackman right i get you i get you i was kind of thinking though you know speaking of like the years of it um cause obviously it's, it's one of these kind of things where especially in today's climate at the point of recording it's like the more things change the more they stay the same kind of thing and then obviously when this film came out in 88 like what 24 years had passed so this is like this is still such like recent history it will in the grand scheme yeah so that's that's what 98 to us i guess or 99 to us so like if we did a film about the phantom menace i guess well, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that even the events depicted in this film are what uh, are 59 years ago. And the fact that like, the opening shot we have of this is the segregated uh, water fountains. And mm-hmm. that like you look at that and you just think that is so barbaric. And to think that it is 60 like years ago, it's just like 
it's felt it, you know I mean? it feels it feels ancient it feels that kind of mentality and i know i know it's very much still prevalent like today like we, we see like yeah we see people rocking clan hoods and stuff like that like on, on the news and stuff like that and it's just like what the what the fuck is going on but the fact that it was at that place just so recent it's kind of it's baffling to me i just kind of can't compute it but like and i don't know the fact yeah we haven't we haven't really come that far like and i think alan parker said like you mentioned those they're kind of like uh, talking heads aren't they throughout the film with the locals yeah Yeah. the interviews yeah were actually filmed with mississippi locals and they're they're predominantly ad-libbed and like Alan Parker said like they made him feel deeply uncomfortable because like they didn't they didn't have to di- dig very deep do you know what I mean they, they, they were just like that that thinking was still prevalent in 1987 88 whenever this was filmed yeah imagine if you're Alan Parker the director of Angel Heart and you feel uncomfortable about <laughs> <something>. <laughs> you've seen you <laughs> You've seen Robert De Niro peeling boiled eggs. (laughs) (laughs) You've worked with Nicolas Cage dressed up as a bird (laughs) and you're feeling uncomfortable. You're going to like this one, Robert. His name is Louis Cipher. Give it a second. (laughs) I directed Bugsy Malone. What is is going on? That's how this film should have ended. Custard pie fight. Ah, dear. Imagine that was like hard-baked into Alan Parker's uh, contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll tackle any subject you want, but it's going to end in a custom pie fight. Once we could have been anything that we wanted to be, but we decided to join the clan. <laughs> it's like you're, you're filming the scene, and you can see just like Alan Parker just twitching, reaching for that fucking crust. <laughs> like, put it down, man. This isn't... You know this isn't the time. You just hear... No! Alan, don't do it! No, no, no! I've just realised... He walks locks you in, custard pie fight. That's what it is. That's his appeasement. Is they set The producer settled on, what about if Brad Dourif is being shaved and Gene Hackman shaves, but we'll use custard cream pie? And he's like, okay, fine. Do I get to have a fight with him in there? They're like, yeah, okay, fine. You can, you can have Gene Hackman fight. Technically, they're counts as our creep pie fight. Okay. God. The board of directors at like a Ryan picture, just head in hands, going like, "Fuck, okay, we'll put, we'll put like some subtle custard cream in it." Jesus Christ, man, you, you're ill. You're sick. Alan, we've we've had a look at your second request. We're not having them all as children. That's no, you can't do that again. Bloody. <laughs> God, Mississippi Malone burning. <laughs> Fat Sam, Scram Slam. I think like some people would say like it's it's a bit distasteful that we're making light, but I think you have to make light of it just because it is so heavy. It, it, yeah. it does it, it it doesn't give up really. And I what was weird, you know, you kind of get into a pattern in it which I, I, any other film that did this I'd criticize, but just because Alan Parker creates atmosphere quite well, you have this pattern of the fbi have a little scene where they talk to someone and then a black person has their house burned the fbi talks to someone does something the clan does something and then a black person is attacked and it kind of happens about four or five times where you're like we're not really progressing the story in this but it was it i kind of got into the 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 pacing of it like it 
I think just because Alan Parker does it quite well, I wasn't like, oh, come on, let's, let's get to the end. Let's let's get to the bit where they catch him. What are we doing? Yeah. I, like, I, I think I think this is a prime time to address, like, one of the things about this film, like, on release, like, courted a lot of controversy, like you saying mm-hmm. about that kind of, like, that framing. And, like, any time that did happen, even though I was kind of like... I, 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 it's weird to say I enjoyed this film, but like, do you know what I mean? I, mm. Like, it was well made and like, I've, I had like, do you know what I mean? I was, I was moved by it and kind of like, yeah, I was, I was, I was engaged, is, is the word I'm looking for here. <laughs> that, that isn't like, yeah, I had a fun with it because it didn't, it's not, it's not a fun movie, but is the one thing is the black characters in this, like, you don't get, well, you don't really get that many black characters who have characters who aren't kind of just ciphers for pushing the plot forward do you know what I mean like and I, I know it's diff like I don't know it's even difficult because like they 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 did fudge around with the true events of it and it's like you could have had like a a, a black character who was a bit more do you know what I mean who at least mm. had a character that like there was some kind of relationship with instead we just kind of get like these moments where it's like they're asking about what this flower is and you get the kid kind of well mm-hmm. you need to be talking to the sheriff's department and stuff like that or like it's 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 kind of telling a worthy story but then like you you can't you can't look at it and i i i feel especially you can't look at it without the the thing of this is very as daryl like joked about it this is very white saviory do you know what i mean and it's kind of and there is also like a a cab but also like not all cops message to <laughs> yeah. it as well and like and it's kind of a bit like uh, like do you know what I mean like and it, like even gene hackman kind of addresses it almost of that thing of like like when i think brad the wrist character says or so, somebody somebody says to him about like your boss michael rooker i believe he's like well my boss is j edgar hoover so i think he would probably agree with you yeah, yeah. It's, it is kind of yeah i think the film has a very difficult task and i know that alan parker kind of addressed those criticisms by saying like unfortunately the people we're trying to get to see this are the people who probably do swing more to having views of the villains in this film and they're not going to watch like a PBS documentary about the plight of the civil rights movement and what was done to people in Mississippi, but they are more likely to watch a film with kind of un like do you know what I mean non PC Popeye Doyle like roaming around the streets of Mississippi. So it is kind of like this catch twenty two of how like do you know what I mean how do you make this film? And I guess if it was made today, it probably wouldn't be in the hands of alan parker and probably would be in the hands of somebody who would be able to find a way in that could like also tell the story of how this affected the black community because i feel like that is one thing apart from those scenes that almost feel like kind of grief porn in a certain regard do you know what i mean like those moments mm-hmm. of like you almost like to the audience like feeling sorry for 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 the black community of like oh like they're just like kind of wheeled out in moments of like oh look look the church is being burnt down or this is happening to this community and stuff like that whereas like I feel like, yeah, there is a version of this film where we actually see how we actually get a bit more of the internal lives of the black community as opposed to... Uh, I don't know, it's, it's a difficult needle to thread, right? Yeah. The open, the inciting incident is that a church has been burned down that was getting set up for the voter registration, yeah. which means that, you know, there are active people here who, you know, that, who, who are doing things. So 
it it kind of paints the whole black community as kind of cowardly there <laughs> and because you don't see them before that you you never get that sense of like fighting back it's actually comes as a relief towards the end when you get that one black guy who uh Gene Hackman has flown in to inter- to um yes. to, to threaten to cut off someone's balls. Oh, it's all the Emery, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, that great scene. I was like, oh wow, great. So someone, you know, they've got someone from the community to come and do this. And then like, okay, that I get that that this is just a, a kind of guy. He's kind of like the exorcist for racists, but um he <laughs> <laughs> he's he's probably the most interesting black character that they give us, and he's in and out and gone. He's not. We don't get to meet anyone. Yeah, very brief, very fleeting. Um, and I but, think there is the, 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 there is a way to because there is that family they keep going back to, right? And there's that guy who kind of like they with, with the young son who kind of kind of has the attitude of like fuck it, I'm just going to talk to the FBI. And there's that m- moment where their their farms burnt down and the, the cows are trapped in and they lynch the dad. And it's like. To be able to have just had a couple of scenes, do you know what I mean a few a few scenes with them, and even if it's taking away from the main plot, I I wouldn't have minded that. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean you could have gave you could have given me what this is two hours twenty, like two hours ten. I could have easily t- two and a half hours, just like and even that, just twenty minutes, like of the interior lives of the black community, probably isn't enough. But like it is, it's something to kind of and even like even on just. like storytelling do you know what I mean it's like if you want and it's that thing if you want that audience to care the people who well they need you need to show do you know what I mean you need to show racists who who obviously Alan Parker in his kind of defence is saying oh we're trying to we're trying to show them like it's like well show them in more than just that like kind of fleeting line from Brad Dourif's character where he kind of it's like despicable thing he says but when he says like oh aren't their babies like cute and it's like we need more than that to kind of uh, kind of change the opinion of people who probably are a bit more racist leaning that like do you know what I mean than just going like uh yes yeah, it was all solved by a load like by a hundred white guys do you know what I mean like <laughs> yeah classic case of it takes a white guy to catch a white guy um tailors all this time um yeah i guess maybe like we're because we're, we're kind of looking back at the 80s and with a you know a 2023 point of view we i guess we need films like this to then bridge into you know more nuanced yeah uh, but i, I, I think films. of the time like it kind of it had its backlash like spike oh, yeah. jones immediately kind of came against it the families of uh people involved were, like weren't particular i think uh james uh charney's family like, like even the free the free victims kind of family said like we're, like we're, we're not we're not in for this kind of thing and it's yeah kind of at the at the time and yeah it was a, i think it was a big talking point like the kind of that that the, the handle the handling of it and I, I i guess you tackle any true life thing it's gonna Daryl joked about looking like Jeffrey Dahmer like that. That series was an, an, another thing where it's like the, the and, and like we were saying earlier, like it was only tw- like twenty odd mm. years after the actual events had happened. So like the, the mm. families are, are still, do you know what I mean? Would have yeah. I guess it's brought it's, up it, to them. It's a weird one because it's the question of the fact that this was made does and uh, because this was made, we now like we we know that true story. Exactly. Or is it the fact that? This was made 
inaccurately, but it's the most famous depiction of it. So there's not really a chance for that story to be told properly now because the case, the file case was called Mississippi Burning. <laughs> um, and it's like if somebody made this accurately as a proper, here's where the facts of what happened, would people go, well, we already, we had this, we had it and we had Gene Hackman in it. So we don't need, don't need it again. So has it mm-hmm. soured the chance to tell the truth or is it good that it's it's been created at all so that we do still talk about the case and it means like i i know i after watching the film i kind of went on wikipedia i don't want to brag but i went on wikipedia (laughs) guys just to check like oh what were the what were the differences and stuff yeah like i i I immediately started like listening to some like podcast that kind of delved into the like what, yeah, happened, same. Like, what the, the 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 truth of what happened and like even like i think it's one of the the victims uh wives kind of said at the t- uh ar- around the time like the media storm of of what happened with the free civil rights uh activists like would that have even been such a big thing in 1960s if it wasn't the fact that it was two white guys mm. and a black guy that went missing if it was yeah. like three black guys it kind of like this story do, do you know what I mean this, this story is just another another kind of incident of three black guys getting killed whereas you throw in like two white guys into the mix and then 20 odd years later it is it is a film do you know what I mean and then yeah I guess <laughs> I didn't think about it that way that they, they've come down to Mississippi to go right we're here to investigate an act of racism but us being here has been incited because of our own racism that means we will only investigate two missing white guys yeah. yeah, there's that there's that scene in the hairdressers. I think when I think we first start to get introduced to uh, Mrs. Powell, Francis McDormand's character, and Gene Hackman is um, obviously he's investigating it in his sort of bureau, non-bureau way, making a joke about his lack of hair and what he should do with it. And I think there's one of the women in the hairdressers who sort of says, to your point, Petros, it's like, um, oh, it's such a shame about those two boys. And then Gene Hackman's like three boys because that they're only considering this mm. case from the perspective of two white boys have gone missing not two white boys and uh, and you know a black person as well so it's it's you know from that sort of perspective of like the residents and not even looking just looking at like another day and i know there's like obviously as you say you can't talk about this film without the controversy as well and i'm sure it would have uh maybe been a worry when it came out of mississippi that you're like well this is what mississippi is always like because then you get like the mayor saying things like well you know there's two cultures just the white culture and as he says the colored culture and this is the way it is this is the way it's always gonna be and then you know you get that sort of progression of sort of gene hatman's character saying like um, he has that hint of backstory saying he used to be a sheriff in a town like this in Mississippi. And he's like, look, if someone in Mississippi said this is what happened, then this is what happened. And then it's kind of not until, I guess, a bit later on down the film when the relationship of Gene Hatman's character and Francis McDormand's character is kind of implied. And we find out she's kind of the, the informant, I guess, on um, her husband, who's Brad DeRee's character, sort of deputy that he seems to start becoming like more invested in it because he's got that information. So again, like it, it's, it, it's a difficult one because it's kind of like, kind of the way I thought about it was like, I'm reading all the controversy and the criticism. I'm like the understandable and like completely valid criticism, uh, criticism of this movie. So like, yes, I think there should be, should have been more of like an African American perspective and the effect on the people. I think like you said, Jamie, a lot of times just, 
it's just a lot of just uncomfortable scenes of the houses just keep getting burnt down. And then another black man is just abducted in the car and leave, left beaten in the woods. And then it's just sort of this again and again. And it's it's the white guy that comes in to sort of save everything. But then you sort of think like, from a Hollywood perspective, have they had to say to themselves, well, how do we make this more, I don't know what the right term is here, but like filming, if that makes sense. Because it's it like, especially towards the end when when it becomes more almost not not exactly but almost kind of like a thriller thing of like they know that these this group of people did it but it's like how do they prove it because they have that court scene where they're like i can't remember what like sort of crime they're sort of pulled in on but there's like four or five white guys and the judge is like oh it's for burning down the house is it burning the church the, the judge says like a man's home is his castle here yeah uh, it's it's the after the lynching it's because they burned his house down oh, during the lynching. Yeah. And so they get pulled up on destroying his home. And the judge says, in this state, it's something like a man's home is his castle and you can't do that. And then he does his, but I see why you did it. And, you know, you don't you worry. Yeah. About Five years, but you're, uh, but, but suspended sentences. <laughs> uh, yeah, because of the outside influences. I do. I think in terms of the white saviour, uh, point of view though i think they they kind of try to not make neither of them come into town going i'm here because i hate racism i kind of feel like gene hackman his opposition is just to like assholes he doesn't like assholes and willem dafoe i feel like he just doesn't like the law he's so by the book that what he has seen is a law that has been broken and i think i feel like his investment in it is not that he's come down because you know there's a the social justice needs taken care of. It's because I'm the FBI and the, a law has been broken, so let's solve this law. Um, Gene Hackman, once he gets to the town, he's like, oh, there's some absolute arseholes here, so I'm happy to kind of keep getting into fights with them at bars and uh, you know grabbing the testicles of anyone <laughs> yeah. to see. The, the truest path to justice is grabbing a sheriff by the testicles and just knocking him the fuck <laughs> out in a uh, in a barber shop. I, I think it sort of goes back to a point like you can, I think you you have to look at that, this kind of movie from every perspective to get like the fairest reflection of it. But in terms of like the, the foe and Hackman's characters, it's one of those things where like they're all, they've always been on the two sides of the same coin, but they sort of can't quite see it until, um, until later on. And there was that scene we're talking about early where Defoe and Hackman are, and, and I'm using their like, names interchangeably as if they were actually there in 1964, but they have that fight outside the hospital and like rolling around on the car bonnet. And it's that sort of great scene. He's got like, the gun to his head. Defoe's got the gun to Hackman's head. He's like, it's like, right, like we have to do this your way now. Because he he has that line early when they're looking through the swamp because they find like the burnt out car and he's kind of like well there's already a war here and like the answer to that is just to keep bringing in more men fight you know metaphorically speaking fight fire with fire and Hackman's kind of like you probably shouldn't do that and then they sort of get the more men in and it's, this is something we were talking about off record but I think a very pertinent point one of you know Hackman's guys. It's fucking Tobin Bell. Jigsaw comes to town. <laughs> and that's how, have you noticed, once Jigsaw comes into town, the tide starts to turn. <laughs> Sheriff, you've been racist for seven years. Now face your fears as you cut your way out of your gut. As You, <laughs> you have seven minutes. <laughs> to, to, oh no, I was going to say to find bodies in the swamp, and then I remembered this is actual real thing that did happen. 
I know. Yeah. That's kind of the, if if Jigsaw did like get his hands on like uh, Deputy Pell though, and he's like, um, "You've dedicated your life to hate. Now below you is a KFC deep fryer. Your balls are covered in flour and breadcrumbs." <laughs> and somehow Amanda is still there. <laughs> well, this is this is this could easily be a. a a saw kind of origin story. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is that's, that's that's like Jigsaw's dad, maybe. Yeah, Jigsaw. Jigsaw's, Jigsaw's old in the in. in oh, yeah. It's still Tobin Bell. Actually, Tobin Bell doesn't age as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like that. He's like, I saw some injustices in the, in Mississippi. I'm gonna fucking get my own back. What's that? Tobin Bell was like what mid to late forties. This was like his first movie role, I think. So. If if he's not an inspiration of do not give up on your dreams, you never it's never too late. But then he's oh, he just crushes it. like in, in the time that he has, like Turbin Bell is like you get the vibe like this guy's a badass. This guy has built a trap in his time. I can't I think of anyone else is um but Turbin Bell's just there and like I, I did get a little bit distracted. I was like, that's John Kramer. What the, what the fuck is going on? That's John Kramer. I think a, co- a consequence of, of the, you know, we, we talked about how you keep getting them scenes of, uh, you know, people in the black community getting targeted is when when Gene Hackman's guys finally do turn up with Tobin Bell, you are like, okay, baby, let's go. Yeah, here we go. We're going to break some laws. We're going to break some fingers. We're going to put some hands in drawers. Like it, it's, Because it's designed as a thriller as well, it is exciting to see them guys turn up. And as, I guess from our point of view, looking back, we're like, and Jigsaw's there as well. <laughs> yeah, classic like millennials, all of us. There is some, like in this video cast there, like Tobin Bell's a great one, and also like Stephen Tobolowski as like the kind of <laughs> yeah. grand high wizard of of the clue. Is that what they call them? I don't know. They have got such silly names, haven't they? Is that, yeah, like is a, that a moment, level four mage? Is, is there there's that moment where office where Deputy Pell's getting interviewed? And it's like. Well, you're a grand cyclops for the Ku Klux Klan. Like, grand cyclops? Like, what is this? This is D and D. Like, what's going on? <laughs> you roll a five and commit heinous acts of hate. Yeah, so like it's you know, as someone who is currently playing D and D, like this, this, this was like very upsetting to me. Not that the rest of the film wasn't, but I was like, this is like horrible. Um, that PR for wizards out there. <laughs> And there's a, like, but, but like Stephen Tobolowsky, like you expect him to be like, remember <laughs> me, Ned Bryers, <laughs> and he, he's in here playing some like absolute heinous arsehole. He's like, yeah, like kind of doing like hate rallies and stuff like that, and like kind of going, oh, I'm yeah. just a businessman. <laughs> like that that rally scene, like I think one of the the, the, the most like fuck is kind of like you, you know that these rallies happened and maybe. It still happened, but there was the shots like of um, whilst the rally is ongoing, and, and they're saying something like "balmy," like like our Anglo-Saxon way of life is like under attack, and it's just like the shots of like the adults just like their like jaws open, go like oh, yeah, 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 and then just like kids being held, mm-hmm. and it harkens back to um, what Mrs. Pearl Francis McDormand's character says: "She's like you're not born with hate. This is taught to you." And her, like, and I've you know, the subject of like Francis McDormand. I'll say like, what a fucking like great performance yeah. mm-hmm. as well. The scene she has with like Gene Hackman, where she's I can't remember the exact quote, but she's like, "Hate is born, and then like you live with it." you marry it i was like that's a fucking like god damn there's some like just 
great fucking performances in this. I mean, even with that being said, um, you know, there is that relationship between Hatman and McDormand, which, like, because of the power of the performances and of, like, the screenplay as well, I will say for the most part I bought into it. And I know this is kind of one of those things that sort of is more of these are where the fictitious elements sort of come in and this is where it gets movie-fied. What were sort of your opinions on, like, the relationship? Because... Again, like for like for me, Jamie, like I said, like I bought into it. I don't know if the movie necessarily needed it, but I was you know interested what you sort of made of that sort of dynamic as well. Well, it's it's odd because like it's I think it it's only ever hinted at. It's you know they don't. It's not like they kiss at the end or. I mean, I I would have preferred it if he drove off and she ran out and she's like, wait, and he gets out his car and comes back and kisses her as the sun goes down. He's like, we solved racism. Uh, but <laughs> we did it, baby. I, I kind of. <laughs> I get, that's why you have him him going in to see her so often he's kind of he's 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 kind of wooing her but just for the job to get information and I, I like that it's all kind of slowly teased out I guess the only the only thing I would say is, is that she seems too smart to fall for it like because Frances McDormand never ever seems thick in a film like you you can't <laughs> buy her as stupid can you mm. or for so it's it's odd that Kind of, she gives them that information, and they decide. Even though they've seen anyone spoken who spoke to the FBI, uh, gets to attack, gets attacked, but they they leave her unprotected, and she doesn't also think my violent, brute, racist husband, you know, have a go at me for if they work out I did this. So kind of, I'd say the most unrealistic part is they're actually giving that information up. But then I guess that's why they show her kind of see it. You know, she sees the violence at the rallies. She sees how he, he treats her friend. But I'm, I'm I'm fine with kind of what they do in that relationship. I, I wouldn't have respect. I, I wouldn't have liked it if that you know showing them like sleeping together or something like that. I think it it, it it does that perfect like kind of teasing of it of like there are moments where like you feel like it's go like I feel like a kiss even would be too far. But there's those mm-hmm. moments where they're, they're quite close and it's very kind of intimate and it's. Is that thing, and it obviously just from a kind of storytelling point, like when 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 she is attacked, it kind of then lights a firework up Gene Hackman's mm-hmm. ass. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of it's interesting that obviously like that like that's a that's a story beat that could have been like tackled as well. Is like yeah that he like needed she... he needed her. Do you know what I mean? He needed that to kind of not that he wasn't already invested, but to like fully be like let's fucking go. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like that's what puts a firework up Ward's ass, isn't it? Like, Yeah. And they actually, they, they play that smart because they don't show Gene Hackman getting the news. The way they tell it is to show Willem Dafoe getting the news and being like, don't tell War, don't tell Gene Hackman what's happened yet. Like that's how you build it. You're like, cause then everyone's like, Oh shit, he's going to go off. They have a, I, what I do like is that she works out that she's been played. So at the end, it's not, you know, it's not the kiss in the doorway. It's it's her saying, if you pass through here, don't come knocking for me because I, I know that you've just played me. Mm. Yeah. Don't send me a postcard from uh, the Moines. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's um, I think always, always a bit of a balancing act when you kind of have, I think I like that it was more implied. You, you sort of know in, a, in an earlier draft of this, it was much more explicit. It's like, like I know racism's the backdrop, but how about these two white people fucking? How do we feel about that? It <laughs> sounds sounds great to me, Mr. 1988 film. Well, I executive. think Willem Dafoe gets involved in one of the drafts. 
Ward's night off. He's like, I got, I got a <laughs> motel that we own. We could, the rules are off, baby. Do you know what I mean? like, and Gene Hackman's like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it my way, though. <laughs> <laughs> the laws don't count, baby. <laughs> and then Defoe's like, get me 100 more men for this. <laughs> Defoe's trying to run into that barbershop but getting like pushed out. He's like, ah, fucking fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I, do, watch. I like I like his flail at that. If you if anyone has watched that, watch the film. That's my favourite Defoeism, is when he tries to get into the barbershop to start start to stop the fight and they, they stand across him. He does like a very oh Philly <laughs> his hands go. <laughs> Well, one thing I will say about this film is there's some excellent casting of like kind of a rogues gallery of like screen shits. Do you know what I mean? Like in Brad <laughs> DeRiff, Arlie Ermey and Michael Rooker. Like, my, like my, I, know, I, know, I know for a lot of people nowadays, like Michael Rooker is like, oh, it's Yondu from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like, no, he is the ultimate like turncoat asshole. Do you know what I mean? Like this like... JFK, do you know what I mean? He's, he's the one in the yeah. room going like, ah, fuck this. Like, when, when I would, like, uh, fuck your conspiracy theory. Like, obviously he's... Uh, in, Morat, in Morat, he's the piece of shit who <laughs> eats a piece of shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's, he, like, immediately when you see him on screen at the beginning, it's like, oh, fuck. And it's like, <laughs> it's alarming how, like, easy that kind of, like, the 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 lines he gets like come out of his mouth do you know what I mean they're like mm-hmm. they're scarily believable from like Michael Rooker I do I think like they've got like a top tier level of shit in this but <laughs> I feel like the sheriff was is maybe like been choppered in from a cartoon like that sheriff <laughs> is so over the he, he might as well be like he's wearing a sheriff's outfit but it's open and he might as well be like waving uh, like a, a neckerchief at himself and be like, oh, lordy, it is hot down here. And he's just this sweating fat mess that can't even cover up corruption. Well, yeah. Everyone else around him seems to be a little bit smarter. I was waiting for a moment of him to spit in a spittoon. Do you know what I mean? It's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... Yeah, like the, the the likelihood of being an absolute evil shit if you're chewing tobacco is just so leading to you being like a bastard... Like, there was about at least five million of this budget went on like the sweat budget for him. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> keep him moist, keep him moist at all times. <laughs> like like a whale washed up on a beach. Yeah. <laughs> Someone there with a spray bottle. Like, He's coming to set. Get him wet. <laughs> keep that man moist at all times. Like, Michael Rucker was sort of you know saying. I think looping back to something I was saying about Brad DeRiff earlier, like Michael Rooker is a guy I, I forget all the time how fucking long he's been active in the business. Yeah. And he's someone else who is, um, dare I say, one of the most, one of the best people at playing shits because it's a role he does like so well, so easily. And he's so believable as an absolute bastard. And when he like just, just straight up kills like the guy at the start of the movie, and like, like shoots him in the head, he's just like, Oh fuck! And just like the glee he takes in it, and by the same extension, like uh, Brad Dourif as well, like so good as the piece of shit, like deputy sheriff. To the extent it's kind of like I think, as you said, Petros, like it, it's almost 
alarming if you sort of step out of the uh, the bubble of it being a, a movie and acting how easy the lines can come out like brad the riff just like has a face like a slappable face as well like yeah he has that that schneide look to him and like that's what pell is in this he's like a little schneide he's like kind of randall from recess he's got I that just energy the same thing do you know what i mean it's kind of like randall. yeah slimy and it's just like you kind of want to grab him by his lapels and shake him i mean you fucking little shit yeah <laughs> has he ever been a goodie brad Dourif? if he has he's been woefully miscast <laughs> <laughs> what is what is hilarious is like brad Dourif's photo on imdb he looks so like suave <laughs> and debonair he's kind of like in a, in a in a nice little hat and a bow tie he's like kind of yeah he looks quite sexy i'm trying to think uh, no, worm tongue, bad guy. I know he's played a cop in Gemini Killer. <laughs> I'm imagining him. I can see him like in my head as a cop where someone grabs his gun off him, and he does his like. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure he's probably been a nice guy in something. Maybe that's it. After the Defoe podcast, we do Gene Hackman, and then we do Brad Dourif, just to get to the point. Like, has Dourif ever been a good guy? Just, just a lot of Chucky on there. Uh, um, do you know where? Do you know where I'm thinking? Of, like for my most iconic Brad Dourif performance is Alien Resurrection, where he's the scummiest of Brad Dourifs. Where he, <laughs> he, he gets pleasure out of uh, like punishing the aliens, and I feel I know he doesn't do it, but I feel like he licks Ripley on the face because I'm having the Terminator <laughs> Two. He's got the warden, like the 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 god from Terminator Two vibes. Only it's for the aliens in Alien resurrection oh god he's just he's just out here like licking things like brad stop it <laughs> like i i thought like it was like that was like a great supporting role though as well from like brad like as we said brad and willem um i think just two great supporting roles and it was gene hackman who sort of got um the lion's share of nominations for anything this film was nominated for and i'd say probably deservedly so it's just just some like just really sort of strong performances all round. Then sort of coming and like Mayor Tillman as well. I know we we touched him earlier and that sort of scene where he gets abducted by the FBI operative and uh he's told about that. The guy called Homer who was castrated. And like that like it's such a shame that that scene and um I can't think of like the character's name who it was. I don't know if if he does get named who's talking about like the razor blade and stuff, but yeah. You know, we were saying more just like the shame about the lack of like main sort of like black characters. It was just such such like a gripping scene as brief of it what as brief as it was, just to find out that you know the mayor knew what was going on, but he was never actually part of the clan. Yeah, and then at the end, he's like, he hung himself. Why? And Defoe's like, he fucked around and he found out. <laughs> <laughs> That's I wasn't a hundred percent on that bit where. Defoe looks off into the distance, or he's like, he was guilty. Maybe we were all guilty. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a, was, that is very like, like <laughs> off, it's very like Jimmy, like uh, the, the like message movie. Like, yeah. but it's like okay, we get it. Aren't we all, you know, Vietnam in a way? <laughs> aren't aren't we all bad? And then <laughs> Defoe just looks at the camera, slow zoom on his eye. I was like, I, yeah, I feel like bad watching the film anyway. Stop, you don't have to put extra salt yeah. in the wounds. The you know? cops are upstairs like, are you coming up or what? We've got a body here. Come on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like, like fucking I've FBI. Got a to deliver. <laughs> the Federal Bureau of Giving Monologues, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the Federal Bureau of Introspection. <laughs> just like this this corpse is bloating as we speak we cut it down it stinks have you ever thought about the fact that maybe we're the bad guys <laughs> okay do you think do you think it was a bit distasteful that in the last shot he's wearing one of them tops that says federal boob inspector <laughs> female body inspector oh, yeah that's it, yeah <laughs> Uh, he only expects the boobs on the inside. Federal, <laughs> <laughs> federal boob inspector. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of the ending, though, I think they sort of get everyone together in that meeting. Then they have to sort of they coerce the information out of the mayor, which helps them set up the. I think that Lester, who's meant to be the most nervous yeah. of the group, and they just basically persuade him to give up everyone else and then it's just tobin bell running around with like a knapsack on his head dressed like fucking like jason from friday the 13th part two he was uh, just doing that anyway and they filmed it <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm getting prepared for a for a role i'll have in 2003 guys don't worry about me <laughs> yeah tobin bell's got it in his contract that he has to have his playtime. <laughs> Tobin, what is this? What is this weird doll on a unicycle you brought with you? Don't worry about. Get get ready for a Leave roll. Leave it alone. <laughs> I found it interesting as well. Looking at some of like the IMDb on this, that Gene Hackman decided he'd no longer make violent films after seeing uh, what he described as an out of context violent clip of his performance at the uh, 1989 Oscars. Because of that, he turned down Silence of the Lambs, and it almost cost him the role of the sheriff in 1992's Unforgiven, uh, which, until uh, Clint Eastwood later convinced him, he'd go on to win the Oscar, his second Oscar for that one as well. So So what that says is Gene Hackman is such a good actor that he tricked himself into thinking that he is a violent person. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm a bad guy. (laughs) That and those words are ringing in his ears from Willem Dafoe. Maybe we are the bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) Bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. That that hit him on a person, that hit him in the DNA. Yeah, Gene Ackman's like, fuck it, I'm going full bore. Well, thank God he didn't direct Silence of the Lambs. So he's like, right, I've had an idea. We're going to tone it down. He's just a real big meanie, and he he's like, he farts in people's houses. And like, no, he has to kill. He has to kill the people. Well, he takes the batteries out the remotes and then leaves. No, it's it's a serial killer movie. He's taking their skin off. He wants to build a skin <laughs> yeah. suit. No, 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 no skin suits. No, 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 no. He just wants the he just wants to moisturize. He puts, he puts all the clean the plates in the dirty plate bit. So you know, well, I guess it's always it, all he, about that lotion, the application of that sweet lotion. He's not someone who you like associate with being violent, though, is he? It's not like he's Chuck Norris. That's odd that he had that <laughs> little moment of going, "I don't like what I saw there." While while everyone else is like, "This is amazing. You're the best." Uh, I mean, speaking of sort of like the end of the movie as well, and I think some of like the most like telling stuff about this is that was it the FBI realized that because the way the state is built, they're not going to get any convictions based on murder. They have to get them on. <clears throat> excuse me. They have to get them on, um, is it like civil rights violations? Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone who gets arrested, no one is getting any more than like three to 10 years. 
the sheriff gets acquitted. He comes out with that shitty eating grin when it sort of goes black and white. And then you just think like, well, like most of these fuckers or like whoever it was that they like based on in real life are out or have been out sort of in that time. And it is that kind of like that. I don't, I don't even think that bittersweet is the right sort of term here, but it is a a very sort of sour kind of thing. It's like, yes, they sort of kind of got their men. Um, They found the bodies, you know, the families can have some semblance of peace at least, but I was reading on I think something on IMDb that obviously they're all like based on real people. I've seen the movie; they don't sort of outright use the names of the three activists who were killed. But it said that on February twenty first, nineteen eighty nine, former Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence A. Rainey filed a lawsuit against Orion Pictures, claiming defamation and invasion of privacy, asking for eight million in damages. Uh, he was the county sheriff at the time of the sixty four murders. Uh, and alleged that the filmmakers of Mississippi Burning portrayed him in an unfavorable light with the fictional character of Sheriff Ray Stuckey. Uh, He said, Everybody all over the South knows the one they have. Playing the sheriff in that movie is referring to me. What they said happened and what they did to me certainly wasn't right and something ought to be done about it. His lawsuit was unsuccessful, and he dropped the suit after Orion's team of lawyers threatened to prove that the film was based on fact and that he was indeed suspected of the 1964 murders. Oh, nice. <laughs> so he swiftly shut his mouth. And he was like, no, 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 I did the murders. I'm just not that fat and sweaty. <laughs> I didn't chew that much tobacco. That was That's slanderous, if anything. That's defamation yeah. of character. That's fuck around and find out, isn't it? Generally, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Say what you what want that? about the suits, but if you fuck around uh, with Hollywood money, you will find out. It's sad to think that if he tried to sue Orion now, he probably would have more money than them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sued him in the wrong era, baby. Some, sometimes it's just about biding your time. Yeah, I guess he won in that battle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a hollow, a hollow victory, some might say, but, you know, s- some people, we're going to take... Take the wins where we can find them, I guess. Um, Although it's it's kind of nice to know most of them people are dead now. Surely, I think I would imagine most are. I think there was one guy who got charges brought in the two thousands. I like to think it's Brad Brad Dourif just getting jacked in prison. (laughs) Brad (laughs) Dourif mistaken for his the actual person he was based on. Has been doing his voiceover lines from a from a county jail <laughs> at some point from for a long time. Yeah, I think there was someone who did get sort of arrested like in two thousand and six or around about that time. Got like three life sentences and sort of died in prison. Oh yeah, good. And then I think they officially sort of closed the case off in twenty sixteen, meaning that they couldn't chase any more um, convictions hmm. about it. So uh, whoever's in charge was like. You know, I'm actually kind of over it. Um, we're done. I'm just closing the book on this one. So people are like, oh, okay, well, cool, I guess. Whatever, we got one guy. Nice one. Cheers. I uh, think at some point you do have to kind of go, dead, dead, dead. Look at look, look at the clock. I mean, we're, we're not finding that guy on the grassy knowledge of JFK, are we? Well, I'm, I'm actually, like, I've gone silent because I've been getting a little rabbit hole here of, like, going through the perpetrators list on Wikipedia and just looking if they're dead or not. So, <laughs> Cecil Price, 
So uh, time to play Dead or Not. <laughs> Dead or Alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Cecil Price, who... Could like you spin me right round just playing the background as well. Ding, 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 ding. This is the game show portion called Dead or Alive of season two. The uh, Samuel Bowers, who Stephen Tobolowski is ba- uh, based on, died in 2006. Yay. Fucking burning hell, you piece of shit. Yeah, the, 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 the deputy sheriff, dead. Another guy, Anton Wayne Roberts, dead. Uh, so if he died moment. in 2006, that means he wasn't alive in 2012 to see the first Amazing Spider-Man. So that's good. He missed that. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts, baby. James Snowden, 2008, dead. Good. Uh, we can keep going. Oh, uh, is there any more? So that means he would have missed the Avengers also in 2012. Yeah. Take that, James Snowden. Edgar Ray <laughs> Killen, uh, 2018. Just, just missed the pandemic. Uh, so he would have got to see Looper that did come out in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Edgar Ray Killen. He he was the guy who was convicted in 2005, given a 60-year uh, sentence and died in prison. So it, it's, it's just alarming, though, because there is, you know, obviously other podcasts and sources will go into much more detail about the nature of the murders than what we do again we're, we're a film podcast we're not a political podcast we're not a true crime podcast so there's only so much information we can really give you about this but it's alarming how many people were involved and it was you know ku klux can and there was police and there were sheriffs and um who were just going out of their way to harm a community um so i'm so glad that willem dafoe solved all of that you know so that's well, the, you know, well, I guess happy if you're if you're a Defoe head, you know, watching this film, you're not going in it for uh, like an extreme Defoe performance. You're going in it for you know certainly some bits of made up, but you're getting a little bit of history. So I guess if you're listening to this, yeah, we've we've kind of talked about the case a little bit more than his performance, but that kind of, in a way that's representative of the film. It's more about what happened than it is you know Defoe's character. Yeah, it's not it's not. Defoe swinging for the fences in performance mm-hmm. is it it's kind of and that's where it gets it right is it kind of doesn't does, doesn't let people have flashy showy off performances and kind of is kind of just laying it out and I don't know like uh it doesn't rely too much on c- cinema do you know what I mean trickery in the way of like it hasn't got like a score that is like desperately telling you how to feel all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. kind of and stuff like that. Schmaltz. I guess. And, I don't know. I think, yeah. Defoe's kind of our way into this world as well. Cause Gene Hackman says I was a sheriff down here. You know, he, so when, when he learns about, you know, Mississippi, we learn about it. So he's that, he's, our, he's, a, he's kind of an avatar. So you, he can't be that, that crazy or, you know, like smashing bottles of people or, Running around doing the Defoe face. Yeah, going uh, doing what all your good bureau agents will do, and um, fucking the wife of one of the prime suspects to get <laughs> their catch. Oh, but just imagine if he'd had the Goblin Glider and he he brought it out when they were trying to track track down. No, they they were chasing after Lester. Uh, <laughs> oh no, no, it wasn't like no, and the one of the the black fellas gets uh, kind of pulled into the truck and they're like, wait till they go in, wait till they go in. Uh, if he had the goblin glider and just kind of pumpkin bombed the, the racist. Oh, God. Just, that one that turns them into skeletons. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like FBI green goblin, like goblin head in a suit. He goes to like that rally is and with a pumpkin bomb bomb in hand says, God speed, Spider Clan. Yeah. And he throws a pumpkin bomb at him, <laughs> takes him out, problem solved. 
Green Goblin Weirdly, absolved. Macy Gray is singing there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanksgiving or clan rallies. You know, if it pays, we slay. So I think on that Macy Gray, Green Goblin, Spider Clan bombshell, we will start wrapping up here on Mississippi burning. So in terms of the moon, we've got a few bits to take care of. The first is in Mississippi burning. Does Willem Dafoe do deface? Does he do one of those meme gifified faces of Willem Dafoe that we've all come to know and love over the years? Uh, we start the roundtable of answers with yourself, Jamie. Uh, for yourself, was there a deface in Mississippi Burning? I don't. I think we get half a face when he pulls the gun on Hackman, but I don't think we get full Dafoe face. Yeah, I think. I think it's a. Uh... It's a very by-the-book by the face pulling. So we'll say one on the no column there for defaces. Uh, Petros, yourself, any defaces that you saw? I'm going to have to go with no as well. I think, like, everything is warranted. I think, like, a kind of true deface is almost, like, uh, leaning into the theatrical and, like, kind of almost uh, not taking you out of the film, but, like, you kind of makes you sit up in your chair being like, whoa, he's, he, he's, he's pulled that out of the bag. Whereas in this... Every kind of reaction shot you get of him is very restrained, and he's like, it's it's warranted, right? Like when they first see the like that kind of image that's used on the poster of them, like when they kind of first see the the burning cross on their lawn and stuff like that. It's like nothing, nothing feels out of place. Not to say that uh, the the faces are kind of out of place, but they are stand out. In this, it's kind of very much in keeping with it and this is this is Defoe in a kind of a muted register that I think like he works really well in and I think maybe like a first in the in the show like for me like the time of record like in the kind of I don't know we've had a lot of villains or like good guys or kind of out there performances whereas this one is kind of him playing right down the middle as jamie said like in the beginning, playing that straight man and doing it exceptionally well but yeah no unfortunately or i don't in this case i think fortunately no defaces to kind of he, he very much did what the film required yeah i think i'd have to make it three for three on no the faces he was what the role needed to be he was the straight man he was the by the book agent i think if he'd said like a hundred more men and then gurned at the camera. I'm like, I think I have to turn it off now. I don't think, I don't think the film comes back from this. Um, Just going undercover. You know, I'm something of a racist myself. <laughs> oh God. This film could have gone off at some terrifying angles with, with, uh, with less, with less restraint. We move on to our second wrap up question. And that is, does his character, so of course we're talking about not Willem Dafoe himself, but the character of Agent Ward, does Agent Ward have BDE, big Dafoe energy, big dick energy, Jamie, BDE, what are you saying? I mean, I think we all know the answer on this. It's the anti-Dafoe performance. He's he's muted, he's, he's quiet. I think sexually this is a guy who has a little lamp on and definitely only does missionary uh, and like probably says thank you afterwards, um, which is what makes it great. It's it's the opposite of a traditional Defoe performance. So not in a bad way, I'd say no, it does not have BDE. 
Mm. I'm going to have to come swinging out of the gates here and say that I I think the character of Ward shows some real big dick energy. Like, case in point, I think him kind of leaping on top of Gene Hackman, putting the gun in his face. That's that's some big, that's some big, big nuts energy and big dick energy for me. I think the fact when Kevin Dunn says to him, like, the the motel won't have us anymore it's like just fucking buy the place like that's kind of like that's that's big big check energy as well you know I mean? that's like fucking go to the top we'll get it i think i and, and like putting putting gene hackman in his place at the beginning is kind of like the confidence of the character i feel like you've got to be swinging some serious hammerage if if you're gonna be like fuck you like i'm here i'm here because I need to be here, buddy. Do you know what I mean? I'm not here because he's trying to say to him, like, calling him a kid and stuff like that. He's like, hey, I may be a kid, but I'm fucking packing some heat in my pants, boy. (laughs) So one for one on the BDE. Yeah, I think on the balance of probability for me, I'd have to lean more into some BDE. And I think that the the main example I was going to bring up was the one that you said, Petra. I said, like, well, they're going to kick us out of the motel. He's like, then just buy it. Like, what's our budget? whatever it takes we're just spending fucking federal money here doing what we want 75 dollars a night renting out that goddamn theater 100 more men that's not even what that is something i wanted to bring up there's like we got this place for 75 dollars a month fucking what i i think i think uh, is it kevin dunn the actor's name yeah I think his cousin owns that place, and he's like, I think I've worked a way that we can make some money on this place. I'm gonna, we'll just buy it. It's fine. I'll be, yeah, I'll be interested to know if there is still a an FBI owned motel in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so just, I mean, I just did like a quick Google, and think apparently it's around about what seven hundred and fifty dollars today. I think. For a commercial um, property, for a theatre space, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like buying properties, the sixties was the time to be. The fucking the boomers had it like fucking locked down. Um, <laughs> ten cent, ten cent bottles of coke, and a and a seventy five seventy five dollar a month cinema. Yes, please. And back back when the coke had actual coke in it as well. <laughs> All, all you needed was like three paper rounds and you could buy like five houses. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Good house on a hook, hook the duck, the local carnival. Do you know what I mean? Coconut shy. Oh, you got a free, free bed semi detached. Yeah. To be fair, though, like, and then a week later, someone burns it down. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> win I mean, some, you lose some, Jamie. Yeah. The circle I, of life, baby. I wasn't buying a property in Mississippi, I'll tell you that much in 64. Yeah, I think on probability, I'd, I'd give it sort of big dick energy i mean were his tactics working not really but he would just kept throwing shit at the wall wasting federal money until he got his goddamn convictions and then he's going to go off to the next town and do it all over again and this time a thousand navelmen <laughs> so some bde for me um and the final question of the wrap-up and some may say the most important. Obviously, we don't give films such as a thumbs up or a thumbs down rating here on Getting Defoe. You uh, very much keeping in the vibe of Defoe. And the vibe with the show, we give it a friend or a Defoe, along with our final thoughts on the film. And as ever, we start with our guest. So for you, Jamie, Mississippi Burning, 1988. Are you giving this one a friend or a Defoe? 
this is a defend all day long. Uh, I think it's in his top 10 for me, or maybe even top five. It's probably after Spider-Man 2, the one I've watched the most. Uh, and then Speed 2 Cruise Control, of course. Uh, I, I like that it's a kind of, it's a different flavor of Defoe. It's not crazy Defoe. So yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend this to people as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one the friend kicking things off there. Petros, yourself, the friend or the foe. Reservations aside, like obviously looking at the film at the time it was made and like the performances and the kind of the filmmaking, this is very much the friend for me. I think that uh, through the kind of prism of like what Defoe's doing, this is this is a kind of breath of fresh air in the fact of like this isn't this is him doing yeah as i said before like a muted performance and that's like it's always great to see an actor play outside of their wheelhouse and like defoe just nails it and it kind of it's got me excited on the podcast to see more of these kind of performances from defoe that kind of aren't swinging for the fences or loud or brash or just the guy who kind of is servicing the job and like like defoe is and like ward is yeah so it's, it's a defriend from me lovely stuff that's two defriends and i think i've got i've got to make it a full house three defriends from me i think you know can't praise the performances enough um hackman mcdormand defoe three fantastic performances just some beautiful shots and cinematography in this and obviously like we say you know this is one of those films it's a difficult watch i think it's a necessary watch you can't really talk about it without discussing you know the real controversy that this film courted as well and you know in the recent history of things we're not so far removed from this but in terms of it being a film i think you can enjoy it as a film whilst also respect and appreciate the conversation around it as well so absolutely a friend from me so three the friends on mississippi burning um i think like you said jamie i think this would be one that um if people ask me like what the foes would you recommend right at this point certainly in the podcast we've got a lot of the foe to go understandably but right now i think i'd be recommending mississippi burning to people in like a, in like a, a top five uh, the foe performances potentially um, i think it's that good and now with that said give our thanks in closing to jamie ellerton once again for taking the time out of your day your schedule to come chat mississippi burning with us uh what a delight you've been what a delight we've had um, oh, cheers for having me, guys. Uh, I was doing nothing anyway. I'll be honest with you. I was just, <laughs> I was just st- staring at the laptop, waiting for the podcast to start for about five hours. <laughs> I, I should have done some stuff. Uh, well, time well spent, all the same. But for the dear listeners, our dear friends listening, um, where can the listeners find you on the internet, the socials, uh, and all that good business as well? Oh yeah, so I'm Jamie Allerton. I've got a podcast called uh, The Best Movie 2 Pod, so you probably best find me on Twitter under The Best Movie 2, or if you just want to see me, I'm under Jay Allerton. Uh, I also run some comedy gigs. If you're in the Northwest circuit, I run a monthly comedy gig for uh, Woodlands Hospice, so I'm better than most people. Um, <laughs> just... I, you know, I don't care how much we raise. I just like being able to tell people we raise we raise money for a hospice. Uh, I've never spoken to them. I refuse to talk to them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if, if you're in the northwest, uh, we run that once a month in Liverpool. So if you find me on like Instagram, I'm Alan Jamie. I've got I've, I'm always touting that. 
and making sure people know I'm not getting any money for this. We're doing it for a hospice. He's, he's a good man, people. And that's why we invite him on the podcast. We can all pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. But with that said, all the links will be down in the description as per usual. And as we come to a close on Mississippi burning, it is left for me to say, I've been Daryl. I've been Petros. I've been Jamie Allerton. And we've been getting to foe you. And there we have it, Mississippi Burning, episode seven in the bag. So, um, yeah, like like I said, a lot of ground covered, a uh, difficult topic, but um, overall, uh, a very fun episode to record with Jamie as well. How did we do, guys? Are, are, are we going to be writing that that Apple Notes apology uh, tweet? Is that is that coming? Is that coming? Is that coming next episode? Or We've been drafting maybe another. <laughs> it's uh, it's starting to become less of a joke with every passing episode. But yeah, like a, a hopefully uh, you agree as well. If we we handle things sensitively and also humorously as as well. But like I said in the episode, um, a difficult subject, difficult film. A very good film overall, and the eye acting of Gene Hackman, unfucking paralleled. <laughs> and yeah, a, a a great kind of unifying film in the fact that we all gave it a friend as well. This this season has been a bit kind of ooh, yeah. so we're on a, we're on a twofer, we're on a twofer run. Nineteen eighty eight was a banner year, not just for Defoe, but for our enjoyment of Defoe's films, both the friends. I'm 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 loving it. It's been a scattershot season when it comes to the friends and the foes and the film ratings in general. But uh, yeah, maybe 1988 is the magic Defoe number, and we'll uh, we'll get to the other 98 1988 film in due course. Will will we get to the point where an entire year of Defoe is full of the friends? We'll find out. We'll find out. There's a little hook for you. But of course. As ever, uh, thank you for listening, dear listener. Um, always more room in the Defoe commotion train. We love having you on board. And um, we keep on rolling on that train because we've obviously got some more episodes coming up in the season. Uh, who have we got? What have we got coming up next week, Patros? So we will be looking at the 2017 Adam Wingard adaptation of the beloved manga and anime and film series from Japan, Death Note, where we'll be joined by Ben Challoner, the host, or one of the hosts, should I say, of the Third Windows Film Podcast. So Ben knows his apples when it comes to Japanese cinema. He knows his apples when it comes to uh, East Asian cinema. Will he know his apples on Death Note? Will he enjoy this turn as uh, Ryuk, as uh, Defoe, yeah, in another rare voice-only performance, even though Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if listeners have seen pictures of Ryuk. Surprisingly looks like Willem Defoe to me. (laughs) You know, there's death gods, um, very similar to our foe. And apropos as well, Applepoe, I might say, his character does love apples as well, with you mentioning there. So uh, one of the, it's one of the few films that I've definitely seen before, and all I'll say is, oh boy. Um, <laughs> so all that to look forward to next week. And of course, we can't wrap things up without thanking our editor, Matt, for piecing this thing together. You know, you 
put out the fires, the Mississippi burning fires, and uh, keep things chugging along and making it sound like we know what the hell we are doing. Oh, Matt is very much the hundred men that we call in to help us with our search. If not, we are just a couple of fools in a swamp, pushing around, looking for clues. <laughs> so, Matt, as ever, thank you for making us a uh, hundred men strong. Thank you for saving your little swamp boys from drowning in the mire. Uh, but again, we mentioned it at the top. We'll mention it at the end. If you enjoyed the episode, if you enjoyed the series, if you enjoy the podcast, let us know. You can reach out to us in various ways to do so. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind, dear sir, if you could remind them about all the methods in which they can do such a thing. The Foe Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok is the best place to find us on the socials. Or if you'd like to drop us an email, you can do so at defoeupod at gmail.com. Remember, as as Daryl said, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Wonderful stuff. So thank you again for listening. We will see you next week as we continue to cover all of the highs, all of the lows, and all things Willem Dafoe right here on Getting Dafoe You. So until then, until then, bye-bye. Bye. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to know you, we'll start with Heaven's Gate. And watch them all till the present day.